0: Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we have a lot of stuff to cover, and as much as I do want to talk about Montaigne and Bacon and their attitudes towards friendship, as well as hopefully you get some time for Milton's attitude on divorce, the fact of the matter is today's top priority is definitely covering all the history that we need to discuss in order to introduce basically the entire modern age. Um, As much as we have managed to cover the entirety of like a thousand years in two weeks, the fact of the matter is there's more wild changes going on in this little like three to four hundred year period um, than happens in the entirety of medieval history, at least for our purposes. There's so much more that we need to cover. Um, So let's start by talking about the conditions. Um, We've already discussed Based on you know Aquinas and Ibn Sina and everything that was going on there, how important it is uh, to remember that like Plato and Aristotle were lost for a long period of time and then rediscovered through the Reconquista and then you know re- like sort of disseminated into the the Western European culture over the course of a few hundred years here. Um, this should absolutely be foremost in our minds as we go forward because the Renaissance is very clearly, as you can see with Montaigne and with Bacon, um, just fascinated by the great Greek and Roman uh, stories and philosophers and thinkers. Like obviously Montaigne is constantly talking about these writers. Um, Bacon as well. Sorry, they're taking out the trash right now. I have chosen my time poorly. Um, all of these uh, writers that we're reading are, again, very much familiar with these ancient writers and very much indebted to them and very clearly think that they are, like, the these writers are, are the foundation of true philosophy, wisdom, knowledge, all that fun stuff. Um, but I also want to stress that things are changing in more than just what is available as well. Um, in the 15th century especially, um, there's... Uh, there's this huge invention that changes everything. Namely, the Gutenberg printing press. Um, this, there have been printing presses before. Like People frequently say that like this is the first ever printing press, and it really isn't. Like The, the Chinese have a really interesting printing press that they've had for hundreds of years at this point. Um, but the key here is that it has movable type, which means that it is super easy to prepare for new texts, um, new... You know, new works that need to be produced. So as a consequence, you know, the speed at which you can produce new copies of an existing work of literature or an existing text of some kind is so much faster. Um, throughout the medieval period, you know, there is obviously a huge demand for Bibles, like every parish needs to have a Bible, and if something happens to the parish Bible, it needs to be replaced. Um, and as much as monasteries were very much places of learning and education, and there were a whole lot of, you know, like, conversations and, and about holiness going on there, and, you know, many of our writers for the past... Several weeks of this class have been monks coming out of the monastery system. Um, One of the primary things that the monastery also had to do was produce books. Um, And it was a slow, arduous process. It would take its team of monks, you know, months to copy by hand um, a Bible and make it ready for a local parish. Um, And part of that is because they had habits of you know, illuminating Bibles and making them very nice and, you know, being very careful about their production. Um, They're not nearly as careful with some of their other writings, um, but even so, like, they do take a lot of time to produce. So you're talking about, you know, if somebody else wants to read the works of Aristotle, like the Nicomachean Ethics or something, you're talking about it taking six months. To produce a new copy of that book, like one new copy of the Nicomachean Ethics to ship off to some other monastery so they have a copy, or six months for a new Bible to be produced so a parish can have access to it, and obviously that's a bigger priority. Now, with the printing press, you can produce hundreds of Bibles, hundreds of copies of the Nicomachean Ethics in a matter of weeks. Um, So this rapidly accelerates how fast knowledge can be reproduced and therefore disseminated. And, you know, I realize that, like, this is probably something you've all learned in your high school classes. Chances are your history teachers have given you something, had said something similar. Chances are they even used some of the same words that I did. Like, this is practically formulaic in history classes at this point in time. But what I need to emphasize is how big a cultural impact this has. Like, we are talking about a society that had, at most, like, 2 to 3% literacy typically reserved just for the priests the clergy maybe a couple of merchants the monks like these are, the, are literally the only people in the entire medieval world who can read and write and now all of a sudden books are much more available than they used to be you know when there were only books available in monasteries in churches in you know like libraries of rich aristocrats you know, nobody needed to read. Like, you didn't need peasants who were, you know, working the farms on, on some lord's estate to be able to read whatever, you know, hot new literature or hot new scientific treatise had come out. Um, there was no way for get, for them to get a hold of it, for one thing, and there was just no point. Like, it didn't benefit their work. There were no schools for the young, or where there were, they were typically reserved for, you know, the merchant class or the... The noble class, Um, like, there is actually a push in the 12th and 13th centuries to include more public uh, education. Um, But even then, it's not for reading so much as it is for, like, helping them to, you know, use new technology or to, like more efficiently maintain their their property and stuff like that but now now there are books everywhere now it's easy for you to produce whole bunches of books and get them to whole bunches of people and as a consequence more and more of the middle class are learning to read because there's a reason for it now now you know you don't need a whole heck of a lot of money in order to justify having some books lying around and to read those books and to you know be able to use the teachings of those books to Advance your business in some way. Um, And at the same time as this is happening, we also get this huge explosion in the middle class. Um, Like, I know that we haven't talked about economics in here largely because this is definitely not, you know, germane to most of our conversations, but it's really important to note for this moment in history that there is a great deal more to read. Those things that can be read are able to be disseminated much faster and therefore there are just many more books hanging around but also there are people who want to read them. You know it is now to a middle-class merchant's advantage to learn how to keep their record keeping and to do that in-house than hire some you know high or highly trained noble to do it for them. Um, And there are a whole bunch of merchant trading houses and banks and you know guilds that are sort of springing up all over Western Europe. Um, society, civilization itself is rapidly changing. Um, and this, of course, is the Renaissance. Um, like as much as there, there have been a lot of historians who sort of emphasize that like for 80% of Europe, nobody even noticed that the Renaissance was happening. Yes, this is true. Again, for the average peasant, nothing has changed here. But from a civilization standpoint, we're talking about going from like a 3% literacy rate to a 10% literacy rate, which is huge, like a massive number, a massive change as far as what we've seen before. And now a huge explosion in the number of books that are available, a huge explosion in the number of various people writing, because now it's so much easier for them to, you know, write a treatise, get it printed or published, and share it with everybody who who is sort of interested in their field. Um, And as a consequence, we get the beginnings of science here. Like, nobody is calling it science yet. I I think I've emphasized in other lectures that at this point it's still just natural philosophy. Uh, But there are a lot of scholars Students, lay people, interested amateurs who are doing things like observing the growth of peapod plants in the monastery garden or who are making interesting observations about the nature of like pr- uh, perspective and proportionality in art and are writing treatises on how to, you know, how the Greeks or the Romans would produce aesthetically pleasing paintings or aesthetically pleasing statues um and art is probably the place that this is most obvious so that's kind of where I'm going to focus my discussion um but a lot of artists and architects for that matter and you know the two are f- frequently overlap, especially in the case of Brunelleschi. um a lot of these artists and thinkers are sort of sharing their ideas. So you have, you know, Leonardo da Vinci writing treatises on the nature of plants on the Italian countryside, or the nature of linear perspective, or the nature of, um, like, the golden meme, the, this uh, old ancient idea that like it, a certain proportionality like one to two um, was aesthetically pleasing and therefore all of these painters are put pl- placing their landscapes like one or two thirds the way down the, the painting, thus making it seem especially calm or comfortable uh, to us. Um, it's this whole thing and people are sharing these ideas and they're building off of these ideas. And, that, and as a consequence for like the first time ever, we're seeing a, global art movement develop. Um, The Renaissance, like anyone who is even remotely trained in art history can recognize a Renaissance painting. They have very clear characteristics and very consistent characteristics. Um, They have this sort of flat lighting and these frequent use of pastel colors, these realistic body depictions. Um, All of these characteristics are in common because all of these artists were hanging out together. They were reading each other's books. They were engaged in this common activity. Um, this was not possible before. Like, you could not attract a whole bunch of people to one cultural center except by, you know, like, literally going out and getting them if, you know, somehow their their reputation had had crossed a great distance. Now, because there are all these books being disseminated, people are coming looking for this cultural center, looking to be a part of it. Um, And as a result, like, Italy becomes the center of the world for a little while. Um, And not just Rome like, we've talked about how Rome is kind of the center of the world, both for the Roman Empire and, you know, later because of the papacy, it's this whole thing. But we're talking about, like, Florence and Venice getting suddenly very wealthy because of the, the merchants and the banking systems that are in place there and the fact that they exist, once again, on this central Mediterranean location where they can dispatch ships all over the Mediterranean and now trade with partners who it's now safe to trade with again because they, too, are getting wealthier. and The political circumstances aren't nearly as dangerous as they have been for the last thousand years this is an unprecedented moment of peace and prosperity in western europe like they even are down to one pope again how did that happen um it's calm and it's this great fertile ground for this explosion of culture of sort of artistic uh inquisition like by which i mean not like what's kill a bunch of artists who are not doing the right thing but like let's talk about art let's look into art let's look into the principles of art let's study art as something that you know we can improve that benefits everybody um and what's more all this money is being put into art and science and literature like all of these you know catholic priests and and important catholic figures are commissioning paintings for their giant you know Pro, like, uh, architectural projects like St. Peter's Basilica. Um, these are huge opportunities for these artists, and they have produced some of the most lasting works of art in Europe to this day. Um, some of the most famous, some of the most, you know, some of the most highly regarded, like Sistine Chapel Ceiling is the Renaissance. Um, the Last Supper by Da Vinci is the Renaissance. Like, these are all hugely important works of art that pioneered the sort of way that art works in a variety of ways. Um, But with this explosion of scientific inquiry and artistic accomplishment and architectural development and sort of these, you know, the sudden burst of technological um, advancement comes also danger. And in 1517, In addition to our Renaissance accomplishments, we get the Protestant Reformation. Um, Namely, Martin Luther, who is just some random monk at some random uh, monastery in the Holy Roman Empire, gets a little fed up with some of the Catholic Church's more indulgent practices, let's call them. And he writes 95 theses on the subject of how the Catholic Church needs to be reformed. Um, Now it would entirely seem like martin luther's intention was basically to strike up a conversation within catholic Christendom about hey maybe we should actually look at the bible and like reevaluate some of our practices because the church has gotten a little corrupt lately and and maybe we should you know back down and and rethink our priorities rethink what what christianity is really all about cuz Catholicism has gotten super rich lately, hence why they're commissioning all these huge artworks and buildings and so on and so forth. Again, because things are safe, Catholicism is skimming 10% off the top of everyone's income all the time, always, because tithing. Um, And they're very much kind of enjoying other sources of revenue and income at this point, which are a little shady, Um, And as a consequence, Martin Luther is like, guys, we can't do this. Like, the church has never been supposed to be about money this way. Please stop. But rather than, you know, striking up said conversation and and having some, you know, a bunch of monasteries sort of go back and forth about like, hey, what should the Catholic Church actually change about the way that it's doing things? Instead, a whole bunch of people who have been spoiling for a fight with the Catholic Church uh, have take this as their opportunity to go full on Religious schism. Hence the Protestant Reformation. Um, and by the Protestant Reformation, I mean that, like, the church splits. And this is the most sudden and radical divisive split. In the history of the Christian Church, like as much as we talked about the Great Schism, the when the you know Eastern Orthodox Church, all those patriarchs hanging out around Constantinople and, and Asia Minor, and you know in, in Africa and the Middle East and stuff, kind of eventually sort of split off from the Catholic Church based in Rome, largely because Rome was getting a little uppity, and the the Eastern Church was just not as interested in what Rome was interested in. Now, very suddenly, like over the course of 50 years, we go from zero to 100, Catholicism is not the only game in town. And I want to stress a few things about the Protestant Reformation, because again, it's going to radically shape the way that a lot of the changes in, in European understanding of, of Christianity works. It's going to very much sort of at least for the next few readings, split our readings right down the middle between Catholic and Protestant, and it will be very important to notice, you know, who's writing at any given moment, like where are they writing, are they Catholic, are they Protestant, how many of those biases are they carrying along with them, um, as well as sort of turn the Catholic Church into a bit of a witch-hunting tailspin um, like, the, as much as the Inquisition has been going on for a while before the Renaissance and the Reformation, oh man, does it ramp up as soon as the Reformation is, is well underway. Um, so we need to talk about this in short, and let's, we'll try and do it as systematically as possible. Um, so again, Martin Luther did not intend to break the church in half. That was not what he was going for. Um, this But like I said, there's kind of a lot of people who have been spoiling for a fight with the Catholic Church. And as a consequence, it very much spins out of Martin Luther's control very quickly. Um, So Luther, when he realizes that the Catholic Church is now excommunicating him and like, you know, this is going to be bigger than just a conversation between a couple of monasteries, he founds his own church, the Lutheran Church. This is the first huge Protestant church. Um, and by founding the Lutheran church, like, obviously when you found a church, it's just kind of like one building, one group of people, and he's kind of figuring that it's just going to be a matter of time until everybody gets grumpy and like beats him up. Um, like I said, the Catholic church is fairly used to beating up heretics at this point in time, like several times throughout the medieval period, which we didn't talk about all that much. Various, uh, movements within the church were branded as heresies, and then like various monastic orders were founded to combat those heresies like the Franciscans. Well, the Franciscans have kind of another history, but they did end up doing some fighting. Um, the Dominicans and the Albigensians are kind of the classic example. Like, the Albigensian heresy shows up, and the church is like, all right, we're going to build Dominicans, and Dominicans are going to beat the shit out of the Albigensians. And they do. Like, the Albigensian heresy is put down rather quickly. And in the 15th and the 16th century, we also get a couple of... Well, 14th and 15th century, we get a couple of other sort of rabble-rousers, like John Huss... Um, and the sort of bohemian church and he kind of like manages to make some trouble with the catholics and the catholics try and beat them up and they fail (laughs) like the bohemians are like we're not taking this shit anymore so they fight off the catholics and the catholics kind of come to an uneasy truce um but this is a much bigger magnitude for a few reasons um for one thing again the ground was prepared people were looking at this as a possible political way to get one over on the catholic church so as much as a lot of the protestant reformation is motivated by like theologians who actually really believe in what they're talking about and really do have problems with Catholic theology. The Protestant Reformation is also very much informed and carried away by politicians who see Protestantism as an avenue towards political gain or political power. Um, They recognize that, you know, they... They would better off be allies with Luther and his growing posse of protectors than with the Pope, who is already kind of growing out of fashion at this point in time. Um, now, Luther again—he founds his one church, but because the uh, because the Gutenberg press can spit out Bibles and tracts and pamphlets way faster than would have been possible in the medieval period, Lutheranism spreads like crazy. Um, And what's more, what's especially significant to our purposes here is Lutheranism promotes reading the Bible yourself. Um, This is something fairly alien to Catholic theology. Like, up until this point, again, because of the circumstances in medieval Europe, like, with only two or three percent of the population being literate, uh, the way that a mass was conducted was the priest would read the Bible to anyone who was sitting there listening, usually in Latin, which you know you can sort of sit there and wonder exactly how helpful that is. Uh, but then he would expostulate about it. He would like talk about what he had read. So the priest is your go-to connection for your godly interaction. Like if you have questions about Christianity, you talk to the priest. If you need to make confession, you talk to the priest. If you need to perform a marriage, you talk to the priest. Everything goes through the priest. Um, And because the priest is the only one around who knows the Bible, who has access to the Bible, he is the 100% authority. Like, nobody else can challenge him on this. But Luther starts printing his Bibles in German. Like, he makes up his own translation of, of the Bible and starts printing it off and circulating it. And notice, this is a huge deal for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it's in the vernacular. It's in German, not Latin. Up until this point, the Catholics have only ever been using the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, and they've kind of been, you know, just preserving the Latin language long after anyone actually, like, grows up speaking it, um, just as this sort of academic language for discussing the Bible, theology, philosophy, etc., Um, So, like Aquinas, uh, Andreas Capillanus, like virtually everybody that we've read in our discussion of medieval European philosophy is writing in Latin, like including Dante, including Augustine. The only exception, of course, is Ibn Sina, who's writing in Arabic, which, again, that's sort of a totally different tradition. But by writing the Bible in German, by translating it into German, Luther is stressing that you do not need to be part of this. Rigorously confined academic caste in order to do theology. On the contrary, Luther emphasizes that the scripture is all that we need. Um, In order to be a Christian, you do not have to participate in Catholic theology, you do not have to be a member of the Catholic Church, you do not have to follow Catholic rules or Catholic guidelines, you do not need to perform the sacraments that the Catholics have laid out. Lane out. Like, Luther doesn't have a problem with most of those sacraments. Luther doesn't have a problem with most of Catholic teaching. But where he differs is by stressing that the Catholic Church is not necessary to Christendom. You do not need an earthly order in order to have a heavenly relationship. So by printing the Bible in German, he is basically saying that anyone who is literate can do Christianity all by themselves. Like, yes, they need the church. Yes, they need, you know, a body of believers, but they do not need Catholicism, like capital C, the church. They do not need the organization in place. Um, so Luther famously says that uh, his his theology is sola scriptura, um, based on scripture alone. Um, and now there's two sides to this. On the one side is the fact that Again, anybody can pick up a Bible at this point, read it, and come to their own conclusions about what could, what Christianity is supposed to be about. Uh, like Luther is very much opening the door to any literate person and saying, "Figure out how Christianity works for yourself." Let's be rig- let's all of us be rigorous scholars of the text and not just this sort of elevated priestly group. Uh, let's not you know wall off. Christian teaching. This is supposed to be for everyone. Um, But the second part of this is he is throwing out Catholic tradition. Um, Catholicism, to this day, prioritizes the tradition and the scripture on the same level. Like, what the popes have taught is just as true as what the Bible teaches. Um, And again, it's been 1,500 years of Christian teaching and theology and so on Catholicism at this point has accumulated a huge tradition. The popes have made tons of mandates. Lots of rules are in place. Lots of you know additions to what to what the the New Testament and Old Testament originally said. Like we talked in our last lecture about Dante about the whole purgatory thing. That's not biblical, but it is part of the Catholic tradition, and therefore the Catholics hold that that is true. We also talked about the Mary worship thing. Um, that's not part of the Old and New Testament. Like you can see, you know, Mary is talked about, obviously. She does have this sort of prominent place in the New Testament, but she is not venerated. And at no point does, does anyone say that she should be venerated. But this has become a part of the Catholic tradition. This is what Luther is kicking out. Luther is kicking out confession, Luther is kicking out the the veneration of Mary, Luther is kicking out purgatory. You know, some of the things he's going to be less objectionable about, like he's not kicking out all of the Catholic tradition, I think Lutheranism does in fact have like confessional, Um, but as much as he is sort of indebted to Catholicism for a lot of what his church teaches, the fundamental principle underlying Lutheranism is go learn it yourself let's get back to basics, let's not be totally indebted to Aquinas, let's not, you know, be enthralled to the Pope. Um, there is no Pope in the Protestant Church, in any of the Protestant churches. There are centralized leadership structures in some cases, we'll probably get to that, but it is a, of a totally different order than Catholicism, which up until this point has claimed to be the one voice for the for the Church. Like, all Christendom goes through the Catholic Church through the Pope, through the priests, through the Cardinals, and yeah, there are those Christians over there in the East, but we don't talk about them. Like, that's the entire Catholic attitude up until this point. Now things are different. Now Luther is saying, you don't need a priest to pray to God. You don't need a priest to interact with God. You don't need a priest to get answers from God. You can read the Bible yourself, you can study Christianity yourself, and in fact you have a responsibility to study Christianity yourself, to become as knowledgeable about this as you possibly can. And because it is this self-motivated, because it prioritizes this kind of freedom and liberality, it takes off like wildfire. It, all over the what used to be called the Holy Roman Empire, and is at this point still called the Holy Roman Empire, although it is very much breaking up at this point. Like, It's going to get worse before it gets better, that's for sure. Um, all over the Holy Roman Empire, all over what we're calling Germany, all of these Protestant churches are springing up, following Luther's model. Um, they're all very much embracing this new philosophy, this new let's approach the the Bible from our own perspective. But what's more, the Holy Roman Emperor at the time is actually siding with Luther. Um, Like The Holy Roman Empire is definitely not what it used to be at this point. It is not nearly the powerhouse structure that it was designed to be back when Charlemagne was announced to be the first Holy Roman Emperor. But As it happens, due to a couple of weird political marriages gone kind of awry, the guy who's in charge of the Holy Roman Empire is also in charge of Spain and is also the Habsburg inheritor. So he controls like 60% of Europe at this point in time. He's incredibly powerful. And this is unprecedented. This hasn't happened in hundreds of years. Um, Up until this point, the big powerhouse in Europe was, shockingly enough, France. Um, Like, in the 14th century, France is basically running the show, Um, and even to the point that the papacy moves to France because Italy has become too dangerous, and they are just, like, hanging out, being subservient to the French kings, and honestly, the Roman Catholicism loses a ton of clout when it does this, and they'll spend the next hundred years with, like, three popes, and it's going to be really awkward, nobody knows who to listen to, like, it's just a giant friggin' mess at this moment in time, the big power here is Charles V. He's the guy who runs Spain, the Habsburg Holdings, and the Holy Roman Empire. And he is so powerful and so behind Protestantism that at one point, one of his armies actually goes into Italy and sacks Rome. Like, I cannot emphasize how dramatic this is to the western european world like yes rome has had a lot of problems over the last few centuries they have absolutely been in sort of like turmoil and and there's been a lot of questions about like the actual security of the church and the power structure between the church and the various italian lords who run the show um it's gotten very ancient like Greece over there with all of the sort of independent city-states being really strong and waging war against each other. Italy has been a mess for the past couple of hundred years, but it's been an internal mess. Nobody attacks Italy because that's where the church is. Like every now and again maybe you'll have a little friction on the border between France and Italy or between the Holy Roman Empire and Italy because, you know, some of the Italian city-states are getting uppity and invading and or getting invaded themselves. But this is the first time since, like, the Visigoths that somebody has up and attacked Rome, has invaded and taken it over. And Charles V goes in with, like, it's not him himself, in fact, it's kind of like a rogue branch of his army, but they're all hocked up on, on Protestantism, and as a result, they, like, actually destroy a lot of the Catholic stuff when they come into Rome. Like, they melt down some of the big statues that Leonardo da Vinci made, a, a various sort of especially Catholic figures, much is lost uh, in this process. Much is destroyed. Um, So this is a big deal. Like, the Catholic Church goes from being the most powerful entity in Europe to we have been attacked and all our stuff has been stolen and or broken in literally 20 years' time. Um, Catholicism goes from riding as high as it's ever ridden to as low as it's ever been. Um, it is shockingly dramatic. Um, and what's more, this is not the end of it. Like, just as Protestant or Lutheranism has been spreading through the Holy Roman Empire, well, now there's all of these other Protestant thinkers who are picking up on this new Lutheran philosophy and they're modifying it, creating new churches. So by the end of the 16th century, we also get Calvin, um, a Dutch theologian who is sort of modifying Lutheran theology to a particularly profit motivated uh, attitude, um, and he is building the Calvinist church, which is taking over uh, a lot of like Scandinavia, as well as a bunch of Germany, and even getting some inroads in with, with the uh, Scots over in, over in England. Um, England, for its part, is also doing some major movements. Specifically, their king, Henry VIII, has been petitioning the Pope forever about possibly getting a divorce because, for some reason, he cannot marry a woman who he likes and who will produce him male heirs. But the Pope is kind of distracted by the whole Rome has been invaded and everybody is under attack thing. Um, so when Henry VIII stops getting his calls returned by the Pope, he's just like, you know what, fuck it, I'll make my own goddamn religion, and he does. Um, he founds Anglicanism, and he founds himself as the head of the Anglican Church, um, and they basically just immediately granted the ability to get divorced, so he divorces a few more women. I think he decapitates at least one more by the end of this. Henry VIII was not great on the wives, um, So he has his own church now. And it's just going to be off to the races as far as this is concerned. Like, yes, the three big Protestant factions by, you know, the middle of the 16th century to the late 16th century are on the one hand the Lutheran Church, the Calvinist Church, and the Anglican Church. But by the middle of the 17th century, it is an absolute free-for-all. This is where the Puritans start showing up. This is where the Quakers and the Anabaptists and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians... All of these churches are going to start springing off. Because remember, the fundamental principle behind Luther's whole Protestant schism is that you think through the Bible for yourself. You can translate it for yourself. You can read it for yourself. You can come to your own conclusions. You don't need anybody to tell you what it says. So when Luther is saying, this is what it says, everybody's like, well, why should we listen to you? We'll just found our own church and do our own thing. And these churches wildly vary. Like, I do not have nearly enough time to get into the details of, like, how the Methodists differ from the Presbyterians, differ from the Baptists, or how, like, this informs American, like, evangelicalism. Like, maybe if I ask questions about this in class, I can, I can actually try to answer these things. But suffice it to say, for now, there's a ton of different churches. They all have a ton of different priorities. It's a giant free-for-all. And in the process, Catholicism is doing what Catholicism has always done, tried to stamp out the fire. But that's not going to work this time. Where in the past, in medieval Europe, if you found, if you found a heresy, you could just go to the root of that heresy, the church where it's being practiced, wipe out the church and any of the heretics you find there, and effectively put an end to the heresy, because that's all that it was ever able to do, Now, because of the printing press, all of these heretical documents, these Protestant teachings, are spreading so fast, so quickly across Europe, that there's no way for the Catholics to keep up with it. So the Catholics, recognizing that this is an emergency of the First Order, found the Council of Trent. And they, at the Council of Trent, basically, rather than try and, you know, fix things between them and Protestants, which probably would have been the smart move, honestly. Remember, Luther wasn't looking to pick a fight with the Catholics. Like, he wasn't looking for an opportunity to schism with the Church. The Catholics instead double down on their own position. They say, nope, Sola Scriptura is out... It is definitely the authority of the Pope that unifies the entire Catholic Church. They're arguing that, you know, the the sola fides, faith alone, that's also nonsense. We are going to double down on our sanctification practices and the sacraments. And what's more, they found a new monastic order to combat the heresy of Protestantism, namely the Jesuits. The Jesuits immediately get distracted, kind of build a whole bunch of universities and get really into scholarship. So that does not work at all. The Jesuits never successfully exterminate the protestants if it's not entirely obvious but maybe they're just playing the long game at any rate that's just not how it works and while there are a lot of really interesting uh catholic figures who come out of the counter-reformation who come out of this big movement against protestantism if their goal was to stop protestantism that is not what happened now in some areas this gets real ugly Um, there are specifically two phenomena that I definitely want to talk about as far as shaping the course of Europe in the Catholic versus Protestant divide. Um, First and foremost is the Thirty Years' War. Uh, The Thirty Years' War is one of the most devastating conflicts in the history of Europe. More loss of life than any war up until, I believe, World War I. Um, And just totally destroying especially the holy roman empire like germany the holy roman empire is going to have its back so thoroughly broken by this conflict that they are not going to be a significant power structure in europe again until uh bismarck unifies prussia and and the the other german sort of city or states into one unified germany that will then actually be something worth contending with in World War One and Two, Like, the Holy Roman Empire gets crushed, bec- not necessarily because, like, they get the crap kicked out of them. Like, in actuality, the Thirty Years' War is pretty undecided as far as who actually won. Uh, but all of the fighting takes place on German soil, and as a consequence, it's the German villages that are being destroyed, the German farms that are being burned, the German citizens who are being killed. Um, in theory, this is a Fight between Catholics and Protestants, but in actuality, this is much more about political power. Um, there are some very entrenched Catholic forces, like Spain and and France, are very thoroughly on the Catholic side. You know, they are largely untouched by the Reformation. Um, but the Scandinavians, the Brits, the Germans. And the Habsburgs are sort of their own animal. Like, I think that they're largely fighting for the Catholics, but also just trying to not die in this process. Um, The Habsburgs are, if anything, winners in this conflict, because they will uh, be one of the biggest powers in Europe afterwards, whether or not it's because they actually won, but has much more to do with them actually just kind of hanging on for dear life and being one of the few people who survive the conflict. Um... Suffice it to say, the Thirty Years' War is going to totally reshape the way that Europe looks. Um, And what's more, the Thirty Years' War is going to make Europe especially nervous about large-scale conflicts in the future. Um, After the Thirty Years' War, we're going to get the theater of Europe, in a sense, where, you know, all of the powers are going to largely be wary of one another's existence. Um... But what's more, the Thirty Years' War is also where we start seeing the, like, vaguely defined nationalities really take shape as nations. Um, France has largely been kind of its own thing. England, of course, because it's an island and kind of is its own thing. Uh, but, you know, Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, all of these other sorts of, of countries largely are, are fairly undefined at this point. Like, even Russia hasn't kind of figured itself out at this point. But after the Thirty Years' War, a lot of the the power is going to shift from sort of local lords or the church or, you know, other local power structures into these national kings. Um, And in the 17th and 18th centuries, it's going to be the kings in Europe who have all of the political power, who have all of the might. Um, to wield in various ways. Europe is changing, largely through things like the Renaissance, the Protestant Reformation, the rising of the middle class, the creation of these national identities, all of that stuff. Um, But the other thing that's going to be happening for the Counter-Reformation that does kind of concern us is the Inquisition. Um, The Catholics are going to get super touchy about what people are saying about christianity how many dissidents of christianity are hanging around and they're going to get real real nasty to any protestants or jews or professed atheists who are hanging around in the major catholic strongholds Um, what's more the inquisition is especially fierce about keeping control of what's being published in these areas Um, So the Catholic Church is going to spend a lot of time over the next 200 years banning the shit out of philosophy books, Um, as well as other things. Like, remember how we were talking about the Renaissance as this explosion of new scientific inquiry? Well, there are a couple of major science writers who are working at this point in time, namely Copernicus and Galileo. And Copernicus at least knows how to play politics. Copernicus writes this treatise where he's saying, Hey, maybe just just stick with me for a second. Maybe the sun is the center of the universe and not the earth. Like, I know, mind blown. But nonetheless, what if that's the case? Here's all my math to back it up. Here's all my observations that suggest that this is the case. Here's the model that I'm using to say that, hey, this could totally work. Not that I'm saying that it is, mind you. Copernicus is very careful. But wouldn't it be interesting if it was? And the Catholics are like, We see you, Copernicus, and we know what you're doing. And Copernicus is like, I'm going to die now instead of having to deal with this shit. And he does. Um, Galileo, on the other hand, reads Copernicus and is like, obviously this is the case. Clearly the sun is the center of the universe, and now I'm going to write a bunch of snarky books about it. So Galileo totally does pick a fight with the Catholic institution, and the Catholics, who are already very gun-shy about dealing with this Protestant heresy, immediately lock him up and then keep him under house arrest for the rest of his life. And this is a pretty good indication of what's going to come as far as Catholicism's relationship to science and scientific inquiry. Um, Now, you should keep in mind, again, like... Philosophy and Catholicism have been friends up until this point. Like, remember Aquinas? Aquinas is super Catholic, he is super philosophical, he doesn't see a conflict here, and nobody would have seen that. Like, there were a couple of monks who were like, dude's getting too close to Aristotle, but that's as much as anyone's going to criticize him. And at this point, in the 15th and 16th century, Aquinas is the foundation of the Catholic theology and the Catholic faith. But as these new scientific developments are being pursued, as new inquiries into the nature of the universe, or new inquiries into the nature of, like, physical beings are being conducted, Catholicism is very much looking over the shoulder of all these scientists and all these philosophers and asking a lot of questions and banning a lot of their books that they seem to disagree too strongly with Catholic doctrine, under the suspicion that they are, you know, abetting the Protestant heresy, or that they are also, you know, picking fights with Catholicism. Um, But for all of Catholicism's efforts to sort of quash a lot of these scientific inquiries in the 16th century, the fact of the matter is science is going to win this fight. Um, And Catholicism is going to be concerned with, with totally different things in the next couple of hundred years. By the 17th century, as much as the Inquisition is still going pretty strong in certain areas, the Spanish Inquisition especially comes to mind. Science is going to just pick up and start running and Catholicism is not going to be able to, you know, quash everything that they necessarily disagree with. Largely because Catholicism is going to actually, like, take a hard look at itself and say, you know, does Galileo's conclusions really argue against the Bible? No, probably not so much. Maybe this isn't something we should be really getting all that upset about. Um, So Catholicism is going to, like, sit in the corner and sulk for a little while. Like, it's nothing personal, Catholicism. You'll have your heyday again, I'm sure, but it's just not going to be today. Um, Anyway... Science is gonna absolutely blow up. In the 17th century especially, like following the the writings of Galileo, following the writings of Descartes, following the writings of Francis Bacon, who we are in fact reading his treatise on friendship here, science is going to make a huge like appearance on the European stage. Um, Up until now, there have been a fair number of universities founded largely under Catholic auspices, but now that, you know, Catholicism is not the dominant power structure in Europe, a whole bunch of kings and other sort of secular sources are also founding universities to sort of bolster their power and sort of emphasize their cultural superiority over other nations. It's just a cool thing to have in your country. So the French king is going to found universities, and the British king is going to found Oxford, and the German kings are going to totally. Come up with a whole bunch of cool stuff. Learning is going to be a huge priority in the 16th and 17th centuries. Not just reading all those classical texts like the humanists were, but encouraging the act of experimentation. Encouraging people to sort of look at their world, come to their own conclusions, and decide for themselves what the universe does, how it works. Um, So there are observatories that are being founded all over the place, there are printing presses that are circulating all of these new scientific discoveries all over the place. The world of Western Europe is, for the first time, becoming an identity in its own right separate from whatever city you belong to whatever lord currently pays your bills separate even from the nations that are sort of being formed under one or another king europe is coming to have its own identity its own culture and by the 17th century especially like the baroque movement is even going to unify the way that art is done across both catholic and protestant lines as much as Catholicism and Protestantism used to be the major dividing factor, over the next hundred years, even that's going to tone down a bit. Catholics are going to tolerate Protestants, and Protestants are going to tolerate Catholics. It's not worth fighting over. Um, there are still strong you know, rivalries, and the national identities are starting to create friction, which will definitely manifest in the 17th and 18th centuries. But nonetheless, things are going relatively smoothly here. Um, this is a Europe that is prosperous, that is not totally divided by this sort of inter, inter nation or international squabbling. Um, the great empires of trade are going to start being founded in the 17th century, starting with the Dutch, and their sort of like growth all over the the. Um, both Africa and uh, all the way over to Asia, as well as forming colonies over in the New World, uh, which this has already been going on for a little while. Like, the Spanish used to be the big power back in, like, the 15th and 14th century. Um, the Dutch are very much going to start taking over in the 16th and 17th centuries, and then it's obviously going to be the Brits with the East India Company that are dominating the 18th and 19th centuries. Um But all of these sort of new accomplishments are accompanied by exploration, by sort of like sending all of these, you know, trading uh, excursions all over the world. Like the world is becoming smaller at this point in time. There is more contact between peoples that have never had interactions than ever before. Um, With the sort of lull in European infighting comes... An opportunity for all of this cool stuff to happen. Um, Now admittedly, all of this cool stuff is also accompanied by colonialism and imperialism. All of these nations getting very excited about possibly like wiping out a whole bunch of Indians and instead putting a whole bunch of colonies in the new world. Or wiping out a whole bunch of actual Indians and setting up like outposts and guard posts throughout actual India. Or getting into wars about drugs with the Chinese. Like this is increasingly going to become a part of European culture. And as much as I want to stress that, like, exploration is cool, and there are all these explorers who are, you know, charting the far reaches of the of the world and turning our knowledge about the world into, into a great deal more robust system, this is often going to come hand in hand with oppressing native peoples, and, like, slavery, obviously, is going to be a huge deal, like, for the Dutch especially. The Dutch, the Dutch Trading Company is probably one of the most heinous perpetrators as far as the slave trade is concerned. Like, they'll go on trading slaves long after their sort of power structure has collapsed and they are no longer one of the dominant forces in Europe. That's kind of messed up. But yeah, along with, along with all these accomplishments comes slavery, colonialism, oppression, and a whole bunch of heinous, terrible crap. Um, so let's not forget that that's also happening at this renaissance period of exciting scientific discovery and horrendous moral like depravity. Um, but we have to kind of keep this all in mind. And that's the trick here. Like, again, I've stressed before that, you know, as we're working our way through all these philosophical texts, we have to sort of keep the historical context in mind. Um, this is why I'm telling this story. And by story, I mean this wild collection of various things going on in the, the especially the 15th through the 17th centuries here. Um, our writers today come from this time period. Montaigne is a little earlier. I believe he's 15th century. Bacon is uh, late 16th to early 17th century in England. Montaigne is writing in France, so he is still under Catholicism because Protestant Revolution isn't a thing for him. Um, Bacon, however, is absolutely a beneficiary of the Protestant Revolution. He is writing in um, Protestant England, where he doesn't have to worry about there being too much religious contention between Catholics and Protestants. Like, there is in fact quite a bit of contention going on between Catholics and Protestants, but it's all kind of quiet and seething here at the very beginning of the 17th century. Milton, on the other hand, is actually watching England fall apart. Um, England in the 17th century is going to undergo a series of pretty incredible revolutions, honestly. Like, studying 17th century British history is a trip, let me tell you. Um, Milton is actually going to watch, like, the king of England be decapitated by his own parliament, question mark, which is all the more indication that as the same time as, like, kings are becoming more powerful and consolidating their power, like, take a look at Henry the, or Louis XIV over in France sometime, if you're curious. Um, at the same time as this is happening in England especially, there have been some fairly well-entrenched ideas since the 11th century about, rule being something that the people allow, rather than ruling over the people. And as a consequence, if the people, i.e. Parliament, decide that their king is not being a king, they can, in theory, and apparently in practice, execute said king as being a traitor. What?! Keep this in mind. It's going to become especially relevant as we wander into the 18th century and start getting some real deal revolutions going. Um, but suffice it to say, for our purposes, that there's a lot of new ideas flying around, and these ideas are flying around quickly because, again, printing press, this information is getting disseminated all over the place much more rapidly than was ever possible before. Um, It's a brave new world in European politics, in European religious ideas, in European philosophy, in European science. Like, everything is changing, and everything is changing super-duper fast. Um, And I'm going to try, as much as possible, to contextualize our writers, um, to sort of explain where they are against the backdrop of all of this change. Um, Fortunately, today we are only going as far as the 17th century. Both Milton and Bacon, our latest writers for today, are 17th century Brits. Um, So all the more reason to talk about 17th century British history and talk about sort of the context that they're dealing with. Um, But going forward, it's gonna get messy. Uh, For next class, we're gonna read some Spinoza, who is a 17th century... I don't even know. I know he's Jewish, but I think he's also Dutch philosopher. I'm going to have to double check on that. Um, Kant, however, is late 18th century, which just is going to require us to do another one of these speeches for next time so we can talk about exactly how the Enlightenment it works and what the deal is there, uh, which will become even more significant when we get to Rousseau and Wollstonecraft in the following lecture. Um, suffice it to say, we're going to be blasting through some history for the next couple of weeks while we try and catch up with what our philosophers are, are dealing with and going through. Um, it is a time of great change. like It's only going to get more crazy as time goes on. Like I said, telescoping evolutionary paradigm, time is accelerating in some sense. Uh, the scientific advancements are coming in much faster and much harder. Um, we're going to try and stay abreast of them as much as we possibly can, but forgive me if, if we don't you know, successfully do that. If you have questions about any of this stuff, though, feel free to ask. I want to elaborate on this stuff. I want to give you a better sense of the historical context that's happening here. Because, again we are going to be talking about these philosophers in their historical context, understanding how they have been influenced by the philosophers who come before them, as well as what the cultural circumstances are that are causing them to sort of think in their particular ways and understand philosophy in their particular ways. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at Mong Um uh, Let's take... Open up our, our textbook here and actually talk about what Montaigne is doing, how he is both indebted to the ancient philosophers that he is so enamored with, but also how he is doing something fairly unique. How he is very much a product of the humanistic Renaissance and how he seems to prioritize that more than more than many others um, that we've read thus far. So let's look at of friendship um, first. As again, some context. Montaigne is a French essayist. Um, He is writing in the 15th century, sort of at the beginning of all this Renaissance excitement. Um, But I want to stress that he comes from the same sort of humanistic tradition that we saw, just the hints of it, in Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Like, as I stress, Dante's Divine Comedy very much made the sort of transcendent truth of Christian awesomeness very personal. Um, Dante experiences personally the whole Christian, you know, universe. He gets to see firsthand hell, purgatory, and heaven. And what's more, it is made personal by him in the person of Beatrice. He is as much in love with Jesus and God and, you know, Mary and Christian truth as he is with his personal beloved, Beatrice. Like, she represents for him everything that Christianity is supposed to stand for and mean. This, as I stressed in that lecture, is this turn from the sort of theological or metaphysical or like this overarching truth of the Bible to a more personal attitude. Um, this is what I mean by humanism. Rather than making the truth of the gospel or the truth of the universe the center of our philosophical undertakings, the center of our, you know, poetic description. Instead, we are focusing on our own personal experience. Um, instead, we are looking at how what does this mean to us, the human beings, and also let us worship, let us experience, let us glorify the human experience rather than sort of the far-off divine experience. Um, Dante is very much using his own experience to characterize the Christian tradition, not the other way around, like we saw with with augustine like augustine he's all about you know like let me understand my own personal experience through the lens of the christianity i now adopt let me you know recognize when i was sinning or when i was doing something that god would not have liked instead dante is saying let me understand christianity through my love and montaigne is following in that same tradition he is personal experience centered like, even the way that he's writing this essay, the fact that he is writing an essay and not some philosophical treatise, like he doesn't have the question and answer format of, of Aquinas, he, he doesn't even do the, the Aristotelian, like, let's start with this point, this point, this point, and then move to this point, this point, and this point. Like, Montaigne is writing much the way that he sees Cicero writing, and obviously Montaigne is as indebted to Cicero as to any of the other classical writers he brings up here. Um, it's very easy to draw a connection from Cicero's de Amicitia* all the way here to Montaigne's of friendship. Um, and notice that that implies that same return to the ancient roots. Like, Montaigne has read Cicero, and he's read Aristotle, and he's read Plato. It's painfully obvious here. He is very aware of the various important ancient players, both politicians and writers, all of these people. And because they were willing to write those long personal essays, because they occasionally, especially in the Roman tradition, um, would, com- would filter the, their understanding of the universe through their own personal experience, Montaigne does the same humanism isn't necessarily a brand new thing. It is very much a resurrection of the ancient tradition, but with a new coat of paint and in the context of this new renaissance and spirit of inquiry that is characterizing all of Europe at this time. So on the one hand, reading this this essay of Montaigne's I want us to be aware of exactly how much he is indebted especially to the writers that we've already discussed in this class Cicero uh, Aristotle and Plato but I also want to be very aware of the stuff that he's adding the stuff that he is sort of bringing to the table anew um, what he is modifying from the way that the ancients would have viewed this subject of friendship Um, and the most obvious sort of difference here is that Montaigne is speaking explicitly from personal experience. Like, top to bottom, this essay is very much about not just, you know, what did Cicero say about friendship? What did Aristotle say about friendship? What did Plato say about friendship? But rather, what does Montaigne know about friendship because of the friendship that he has experienced? Um, And notice that he very much stresses how thoroughly he understands experience, how important his experience of friendship was to him. Uh, like even in this very first paragraph as I was considering the way a painter I employ went about his work, I had a mind to imitate him. He chooses the best spot, the middle of each wall, to put a pic- picture labored over with all his skill, and the empty space around all around it he fills with grotesques, which are fantastic paintings whose only charm lies in their variety and strangeness. And what are these things of mine, in truth, but grotesques and monstrous bodies pieced together of diverse members without definite shape, having no order, sequence, or proportion other than accidental? Now, this is something that is fairly, obvi- fairly easy to miss, given that we are reading of Friendship and an anthology, like all by itself, with none of, of Montaigne's other writings. But when Montaigne, in fact, published his essays, he did so as a giant collection of 57 essays. And this one, of Friendship, essay number 28, comes smack in the middle of the book. Uh, so he is very much sort of suggesting here at the beginning of this text that this is the best he has to offer. Uh, This essay is the most insightful, the richest, the one that he considers the greatest of the lot, and all of the other essays around it are grotesques, sort of interesting for how weird they are, but not actually all that good, Um, not having any merit in and of themselves except as novelties. But what's more, he also kind of, you know, refers specifically to Uh, like, why this is so important to him. I do indeed go along with my painter in the second point, but I fall short in the first and better part, for my ability does not go far enough for me to dare to undertake a rich, polished picture formed according to art. This is still going to be rough, Montaigne is saying. Like, he wishes he could compose this you know, profound and artistically gorgeous elegy to this friendship that he has experienced, but he does not have the talent, which is nonsense. Montaigne is wonderful. Um, He just, one of the things that is wonderful about him is the fact that he is perpetually humble about his talents as a writer. Uh, It has occurred to me to borrow one from Etienne de la Boite, which will do honor to all the rest of this work. It is a discourse to which he gave the name La Servitude Volontaire, but those who did not know this have since very fitly rebaptized it Le He wrote it by way of essay in his early youth in honor of liberty against tyrants. It has long been circulating in the hands of men of understanding, not without great and well-merited commendation. for it is a fine thing, and as full as can be. Still, it is far from being the best he could do, and if at the more mature age when I knew him he had adopted a plan such as mine of putting his ideas in writing, we should see many rare things which would bring us very close to the glory of antiquity, for particularly in the matter of natural gifts I know no one who could be compared with him. Notice Montaigne immediately says, okay, so, you know, rather than focus on my crappy writing, let's instead look at the writing of Etienne de Boite, this talented writer who recently has been taken away from us and who Montaigne knows personally as the friend that he's going to talk about here. Now, we don't actually get the essay. Um, As it happens, it's not included, and Montaigne, while he does ultimately publish one of his essays, doesn't actually publish the one that he says he's going to here, largely because it would have been politically fraught. Um, Turns out that Etienne de la Boete had published this article, and apparently it was being used as, like, feed for some revolution that was going on in France at the time, so, you know, publishing it would have been actually fairly dangerous for Montaigne to do. Um, But I want to sort of draw attention to this as his intention. Um, on the one hand, he's going to write this essay about this friendship that he had with Étienne de la Boete. He's going to use Étienne de la Boete's words to characterize it, although he ultimately doesn't. Um, and at the same time, he wants to stress that this is something that antiquity would have been proud of. Notice that connection here, the men- the thing. The fact that he mentions that it would bring us very close to the glory of antiquity. This is something that a lot of Renaissance thinkers and philosophers are going to stress. Um, This was something that was kind of bumping around in the medieval world as well, but not quite as much. Like, in the medieval world, yes, they absolutely revered Plato and Aristotle as the greatest philosophers who ever lived. That's why Aquinas spends all of his time, you know, pairing Aristotle with the truth of the Bible. But notice that Montaigne is all ancients and no Bible here. Um, like, we do get a couple of biblical passages. He does occasionally talk about it, but it is not the priority. Like, nowhere do we see him doing what Augustine did, where he, like, starts his chapter by being like, Oh, God, forgive me for all that I have done, and I offer this as a prayer to you. Like, none of, no, none of that is here. This is not Christianity-centric. Uh, However, he is very much indebted, without any explanation, without any qualification, without any caveats, to the ancients, to Cicero, to Horace. Like, he quotes them all over the place, and he stresses here that, like, all of the accomplishments of the writers of his own time, including this friend who he has profound respect for, and his own writing, will all fall pitifully short of what was accomplished by the ancients. The ancient writers, Horace, um, Aristotle, uh, Cicero, Plato, like, he's got so many various uh, quotes in here, so many Roman consuls that he points to, like, all of these writers he considers to be staggeringly great in comparison to himself. And remember, this too was something that Dante kind of hinted at, the fact that all of those great pagan writers got their special treatment because of how awesome and virtuous they were, even though they didn't know God the tendency on Europe is moving, and Montaigne and Dante sort of give themselves away on that front. Christianity is no longer the single-minded religious powerhouse that it used to be. This is not the defining characteristic, the defining ideology of these thinkers. Rather, now that, you know all of the ancient writers, Aristotle, Cicero, Plato, have been unearthed. While Christianity is doing a lot to sort of like incorporate them into their own thought, there are also, now that Christianity is on the wane, there are a whole bunch of secular writers who are adopting the ancients without bothering to refer them to Christianity. Um, It's okay to just like Horace, to just like Plato, to just like Virgil, to just like Aristotle, or in Montaigne's case, to just like Cicero. Um, These were scholars and sages in their own right. Um, They do not need to be subordinated to Christianity. And as a consequence, where Aquinas would have argued that, no, now that we have, you know, Christianity and all of these ancient writers, we can achieve a truth that no one else has ever aspired to, Montaigne is instead saying, no, we are always going to fall short of the truth of the ancients. Somehow they had it better than us, even though they did not have Christianity, perhaps because they did not have Christianity, um, it seems to be insinuated in some cases. The Renaissance, meaning rebirth, is kind of misleading in that sense, because it is, in a sense, doing more to destroy the heritage of Christianity, to sort of Change the way that Christianity works, to sort of question the way that Christianity works, especially when you get into the Protestant Reformation, than it ever did with sort of just reigniting the flame that used to exist. The pagans are cool again. No qualification that they are pagans. Um, Where Dante does qualify, where he's like, yes, they are pagans, and I will find a way to make them fit with Christian tradition, Montaigne does not. Montaigne doesn't feel obligated to. Montaigne doesn't feel obligated to apologize for the pagans being pagans. They can just be pagans and that's cool with him. Uh, so with that in mind, like he refers to his relationship, his friendship with Etienne de la Boite from the perspective of the ancients, filtering it to try and understand the ancients. So take a look at the first full paragraph on page 188. He says, and yet I am particularly obliged to this work, meaning Etienne de la Boite's, since it served as the medium of our first acquaintance. For it was shown to me long before I had seen him, and gave me my first knowledge of his name, thus starting on its way this friendship which together we fostered as long as God will, though this were not totally unchristian, so entire and so perfect that certainly you will hardly read of the like. And among men of today you see no trace of it in practice. So many coincidences are needed are to build up such a friendship that it is a lot, if fortune can do it, once in three centuries. Notice what Montaigne is suggesting here. He is definitely stressing that, yes, it was God overseeing the whole process, fine, whatever. But more importantly, he is stressing that the friendship he had with Étienne de la boite is something so rare that it only occurs once every few centuries. Like remember when Aristotle was talking about friendship and he was kind of stressing that true friendship, friendships of virtue, are in fact rare and some people are never going to experience them and the people who do experience them are probably only going to ever have like one, maybe two at the most. What Aristotle is suggesting is that, like, yes, those friendships are possible, and yes, they're going on all around us all the time, not everybody can appreciate them, not everybody will have them, sure, but they are going on, where Montaigne is suggesting, no, our relationship, our friendship was something so rare, so unique, so incredibly unlikely and Fortune and God both are required to the manufacture of it, that it is something that I would not expect to see in centuries of human interaction. Um... Maybe that's because the situation has changed because friendship itself is in fact rarer in their culture. You'll notice that Montaigne does kind of kick around these ideas sometimes Um, and Bacon too sort of suggests that like the modern era is a little unfriendly to friendship in the ancient and classical sense. Um, But at the very least what we are stressing is this is not something that comes along very frequently. The friendship that he experienced with Etienne de la definitely sees as being on par with the relationship between like Gaius Lelius and Scipio, the way that Cicero was talking about it, or the relationships between famous Romans and uh, who sort of like founded the Roman Empire or shaped it in various ways. You know, that's the level that he's talking about here, and he's stressing that it only comes around every so often. Um, But at the same time as he's stressing that it is so rare, he is also stressing that it is incredibly important. There is nothing to which nature seems to have inclined us more than to society. And Aristotle says that good legislators have had more care for friendship than for justice. Now, the ultimate point in the perfection of society is this... For in general, all, all associations that are forged and nourished by pleasure or profit, by public or private needs, are the less beautiful and noble, and the less friendships insofar as they mix into friendship another cause and object and reward than friendship itself. Nor do the four ancient types, natural, social, hospitable, erotic, come to real friendship, either separately or together. So friendship is both the thing that perfects society, but it is also something that is so rare that all of the other relationships in society are just aspiring to this kind of friendship. And he goes through them systematically. Like he rejects all of the other relationships that he has and sort of like makes them inferior to friendships. So he talks about children and fathers, and he stresses that they can't be as great as friendships because there is too much inequality between the two. The child will always be subservient. or in indebted to the father, there is no way that they can actually achieve the equality necessary for a true friendship to blossom. He also throws out the issue of brothers. Like, Aristotle would have actually been on board with the brother friendship. This is not something he would have considered, but Montaigne very much stresses that for brothers, they are in competition to the estate of, of the household. So like he stresses that confusion of ownership, the dividing and the fact that the richness of one is the poverty of the other wonderfully softens and loosens the solder of brotherhood. Um, now, part of this is something that the ancients would have experienced as well. Like if anything, Aristotle is kind of blind to that or he's, rec- or he's sort of naively believing um, that the ties of friendship and brotherhood would overcome this. But the fact of the matter is, there were a lot of fratricides hanging around in ancient Greece and the ancient world generally, so Aristotle is kind of just ignoring this. Montaigne is keenly aware, though. His society is similar enough to the ancients that he recognizes, you know, when a father dies and leaves his inheritance to the various brothers and sisters, there's going to be fighting. There's going to be competition. Like, if any of you have watched, you know, your parents' and your aunts and uncles fight one when your grandfather or, or whoever passes away and it's like well, who's going to get the house and who's going to get the car and who's and it's this whole thing like i've seen it happen um that's what montana is talking about here you know brothers are inclined to fight because what one gets the other loses and what one loses the other gets like there's always going to be this sort of competition for the limited wealth and resources provided by the parents um He also rejects affection for women. Um, He stresses, as we have not quite seen frequently expressed, um, although some of the thinkers have definitely brought it up, um, the affection for women is, as he puts it at the top of page 190, an impetuous and fickle flame, undulating and variable, a fever flame subject to fits and lulls that holds us only by one corner. Um, A couple of things about this. On the one hand, we've talked about love primarily as being something separate from affection for women, as, uh, as Montaigne is talking about it here. Um, but notice that, again, we're sort of running into some interesting semantic territory. Like, what Montaigne is describing probably wouldn't constitute love the way that most of our writers have talked about it. But at the same time, it's kind of hard not to sort of see the connection here. Like Aquinas especially was pretty harsh on the subject of concupiscent love and sort of rejecting that as as the basis for real friendship or rejecting that as, you know, being a lasting or meaningful connection on the the order of capital C, charity, according to Christianity. Um, And a lot of thinkers have sort of kicked this around as well, the idea that because love for women is purely physical, it cannot have any basis in spirituality or mentality or whatever. Notice the way that Montaigne talks about it, though. A, it is fickle and fleeting, it's gonna like come and go, that he very much agrees with everybody. But notice the way that he describes it, that holds us only by one corner. This is the image that Montaigne is going to use throughout his essay to sort of emphasize that, like, there is no spiritual connection in this particular situation. When he is describing sort of the hold that a person has over us, the contrast that he's making is, are they holding us by one corner, by just one part of who we are, or are they holding us by our whole selves, by the total sum of who we are? That's, I think, a really interesting characterization, and sort of robustly brings out um, what a lot of the ancients were talking about. Like, when we talked about Aristotle, and he's talking about, like, the friendships of convenience or utility versus the friendships of pleasure versus the friendships of virtue, he's suggesting something similar, namely that, you know, a friendship that is built on a mutual interest or mutual convenience means that you're it's going to probably fade as soon as you are no longer useful to one another. But Montaigne is characterizing this less as convenience, utility, pleasure, whatever, but rather that a human being is multifaceted. And notice, again, this stresses the significance of the human being in all of this. It very much dovetails with this humanistic ideology that he's sort of both contributing to and bringing about. Um, He is stressing that a human being has many dimensions, many characteristics, many corners, many facets friendship can grab just one or two or a few of those facets like i have certain things in common with this friend but i have other things in common with this friend like we are connected to women not because we are you know like totally and completely, you know, caught up in who they are, but they control us only by our physical desire for them, our physical passion. And again, obviously, like I'm using his perspective, men versus women, but this obviously could go the other way as well. What he is stressing is there's a lot of depth to a human being. A human being is a rich fountain in a sense. And while some relationships that, that human being have, they only share a little bit of themselves with other people. The real friendships, like he has with Etienne de Boaté, as he'll talk about later, have us all together, like all as whole, all wrapped up in one another. Um, he very much borrows the, the, the Greek or Aristotle's language there, which he says that we are of one soul uh, later on in the passage. Um that's the image that, that he's very much suggesting here. We are one. We are one in the same person. We grasp each other by all of ourselves. Um the last example that he talks about and kind of rejects is the example of pederasty. Um, like he has on the top of page 191, and that other licentious Greek love is justly abhorred by our morality. Um notice that he's this is one of those things that he can't reconcile. Like again, as much as, you know, as much as the the Greeks were venerated by a lot of philosophers throughout the medieval period, they're always careful to box up their paganism. Like Aquinas would never have tolerated um, Plato's, like, just wholehearted uh, acceptance of pederasty as the ideal Greek love formula. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, there's a reason why Aquinas doesn't bring up Plato's Symposium or even Aristotle's discussion of of male-to-male relationships in his discussion of friendship and love. Like, all of that falls under concupiscent love for Aquinas and therefore should be rejected. Like, it is not worth, you know, the name of charity. Montaigne, however, this is where he very much departs, and he's obviously Christian enough that he cannot go so far as to, you know, accept uh, the, the pederastic relationship. But notice that he does stress that it is the pederastic relationship specifically that he's, he's condemning here. Um, namely the old men and young boys relationship. Like, he, he just can't handle that one. He may be more tolerant towards, like, a more equal homosexuality. That's not something that he discusses here. But based on his revulsion, the fact that he calls it that other licentious Greek love, which is justly abhorred by our morality... It would seem that he wouldn't tolerate either of them. This is this is still you know Christianity is still strong enough in Europe and in Montaigne's thinking that he can't very well overcome it no matter how awesome he thinks the pagans are. Um, so he very much rejects that pretty well out of hand. Um, but I also want to stress how he brings up the political dimension here. Um, so. You know, as he's talking about pederasty and as he's talking about the philosophical instruction and all the other things that are that he's sort of kicking around here, on page one ninety two he recognizes that the connection that the ancients make between pederasty and those friendships with the sort of combating tyranny, the way that Cicero talked about it and the way that Aristotle talked about it, that's legit. So he says, after this general communion was established, the stronger and worthier part of it exercising its functions and predominating, they say that there resulted from its fruits very useful personally into the public, that it constituted the strength of the countries which accepted the practice, and the principal defense of equity and liberty. Witness the salutary loves of Harmodius and Aristogitan. Therefore they call it sacred and divine, and by their reckoning only the violence of tyrants and the cowardice of the common people are hostile to it. In short, all that can be said in favor of the academy is that this was a love ending in friendship, which corresponds pretty well to the stoic definition of love. So what um, Montaigne is saying is that insofar as it was sexual, he doesn't want anything to do with it. But the fact of the matter is, most of these, you know, love relationships that Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and company are describing ended in friendship, and insofar as they're doing that, of course they were strong. Like, Montaigne is totally on board with the friendships that came out of the romantic relationships. He's just not on board with the romantic dimension of it. So, he stresses, I return to my description of a more equitable and more equable kind of friendship. For the rest, what we ordinarily call friends and friendships are nothing but acquaintanceships and familiarities formed by some chance or convenience by means of which our souls are bound to each other. In the friendship I speak of... Our souls mingle and blend with each other so completely that they efface the scene that joined them, and cannot find it again. If you press me to tell me why I loved him, I feel that this cannot be expressed, except by answering, because it was he, because it was I. So notice again the stress that Montaigne is placing on this relationship. On the one hand, he finds himself hard-pressed to describe it. He can't express what the connection was between them. All he can say is, it was him, and it was me, and therefore it was bound to happen. Just like Aristotle was talking about back in the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, the virtue attracted them to each other. There wasn't any other need for explanation. But what's more, notice that the description is our mingles, our souls mingle and blast with each other and blend with each other so completely that they efface the same that joined them. We became one person, in short. Notice this language. Notice the way that Montaigne is talking about it. While Aristotle talks about how, you know, two people become one soul and they're sharing all their things together and their griefs and their loves and so on and so forth, as much as Aristotle recognizes the phenomenon, he's describing it as a disinterested outsider as this is the phenomenon we're describing. Maybe Aristotle has experienced it, maybe he hasn't, doesn't matter. This is what people say about it, this is what other philosophers say about it, this is what we have to say about it, because logic, because reasoning, etc., etc., etc. Whereas Montaigne is not stressing that. Even more than Cicero stressed it, because remember, Cicero doesn't even use his own words in this case. He's like borrowing Lelius' experience to sort of express himself. Montaigne is instead saying, our souls mingle and blend with each other so completely. He is not as much interested in the phenomenon as this outside experience. He's interested in it specifically as it would pertain to him. He is speaking not as an observer, but as a participant. He is speaking in short to his own experience. And he thinks that that is valuable. This is what's so key. For humanism, for the development of Europe as it's coming to be in this moment, the experience of the individual, the personal experience, is now significant, now important. Some thinkers, philosophers, writers, commentators, whatever, have called this the birth of the individual. The idea that no longer are you know human beings just interested in the sake of themselves, in themselves for the sake of higher institutions. Like, they, everyone is subservient to Christianity, or everyone is subservient to the state, or everyone is subservient to, you know, the philosophical idea that they are following, the nature of reality as they see it. Now, Montaigne is saying, this is my experience, and everything that I understand about what the ancients were writing, I understand through my own experience, this is something that is going to be, be actually a huge part of this whole scientific revolution, of the Renaissance, all of this. Because the scientific revolution and the science in general says my experience can be used to understand the world. Notice that before this, it wasn't that way. In fact, when Aristotle, when Plato is writing about this stuff, their perspective is always, I am going to describe the world in order to explain my experience. It's reversed here. Science, the entire principle underlying science, the basic fundamental assumption of the scientific method, which, P.S., is pioneered by Francis Bacon, the same guy who writes the other of Friendship essay that we're going to read for today, he stresses... You create knowledge through experimentation, through your personal experience, through your personal observations. But now that we can share those personal observations, your personal observations can get sort of subsumed into the great series of other personal observations that have been made, and that is knowledge. Knowledge through our perspective, not knowledge making our perspective. Now we are at the center of the universe. As much as Galileo has proved to us that the Earth is not the center of the universe, now the universe is absolutely centered, not on our planet, but on our perspective, our experience. More so than ever Democritus intended it, man is the measure of all things in the Renaissance, especially for this humanistic attitude, which is definitely going to pervade literally everything else that we read in this class for the rest of the semester. Um... Everything has changed with the Renaissance. Our experience is the center of the universe. We recognize nothing that we know can exist except as it is understood and perceived by us. Or the ancients and the medievals were always more interested in that out there, believed that they could grasp it immediately, either because God gave it to them or because it was just manifestly obvious to everyone around them. Now we are squarely focused on the subjective. Not to the point that we think that the subjective is at odds with the objective. That's not going to be for a little while. But very much in the sense that we cannot know anything without starting from our own perspective. Starting from our own attitude. And that is a big, big deal. Now the last thing that I want to stress that sort of drives this home, especially for for Montaigne and sort of especially in contrast with, you know, Um, the the other ancient writers that he's looking at, is where he really does depart, especially from Cicero, like very deliberately, very like explicitly. On page 193, that big paragraph there in the center, he writes, when Laelius, the character that Cicero is writing from, in the presence of the Roman consuls, who, after condemning Tiberius Gracchus, prosecuted all those who had been in his confidence, came to ask Caius Blotius, who was Gracchus's best friend, how much he would have been willing to do for him. He, meaning Blotius, answered everything. What, everything, pursued Laelius? And what if he had commanded you to set fire to our temples? He would never have commanded me to do that, replied Blotius. But what if he had, Laelius insisted? I would have obeyed, Blotius replied. If he was such a perfect friend to Gracchus as the history say, he need not offend the consuls by this last bold confession, and he should not have abandoned the assurance he had of Gracchus's will. But nevertheless, those who charge that this answer is seditious do not fully understand this mystery, and fail to assume first what is true, that he had Gracchus's will up his sleeve, both by power over him and by knowledge of him. They were friends more than citizens friends more than friends or enemies of their country, or friends of ambitious and disturbance, having committed themselves completely to each other. They held absolutely the reins of each other's inclination. And if you assume that this team was guided by the strength and leadership of reason, as indeed it is quite impossible to harness it without that, Blotius's answer is as it should have been. If their actions went astray, they were by my measure neither friends to each other nor friends to themselves. As he goes on, for that matter of this answer has no better ring than would mine if someone questioned me in this fashion. If your will commanded you to kill your daughter, would you kill her? And I said yes. Montaigne is saying against Cicero. Remember, Cicero very much stressed, like we talked about this in Damachita. You know, yes, follow your friends. Yes, do anything for each other, but not to the end of the state. That is the line. Cicero very much stresses, you know, don't follow your friends if they're going to do something vicious, and vice is defined by does the state approve of it. Montaigne answers exactly the opposite. No, I would follow my friend as I follow my own will. And in fact, he says, I would trust my friend more than I trust myself. Um, At the very end of that same paragraph, he says, I should certainly have trusted myself to him more readily than to myself. I would have done whatever he said, no question, because I trust myself less than him. That's the mark of true friendship for Montaigne, and that absolutely transcends what Cicero is talking about, and absolutely emphasizes, again, the subordination of these big structures, be it the state or big philosophical ideas or religion, to the experience of the self, to my personal experience. We are living in humanism, baby. The modern period is upon us, this is a different ball game. We are looking at it from our own perspective, and that perspective is glorified, not rejected. What you see, what you feel, is as important as any other philosophical claim, as far as Montaigne and most of the modern writers are concerned. So keep this in mind. Now, real quick, I do want to go through both Bacon and Milton. Um, Bacon, I don't think, actually has a whole heck of a lot to offer, as far as like what he's saying and and how his approach is going like as much as bacon's thoughts on friendship are are fairly interesting i think that montaigne expresses most of these things better you will notice that bacon is a little bit more systematic he looks a lot more like aristotle as much as his conclusions may differ um like he does use examples like he has this whole like paragraph where he's bringing up example after example of various roman friendships and you know sort of examining them and, and what the deal is there um But at the same time, friendship is, or Bacon's version of friendship is very much one that he is observing, kind of like the way that Aristotle was talking about it. You know, this is something that Bacon doesn't have this deep personal connection to, or at least he doesn't reveal his deep personal connection. Where Montaigne makes it brutally obvious that he is talking about his relationship with Étienne de la Boete, Bacon doesn't have a friend that he points to here. Um, By contrast, he is saying, okay, so here are, you know, the ways that people talk about friendship. Here are, you know, the Roman examples, which he believes are the perfected versions of friendship. As he says, you know, they might have a friend to make themselves entire as though they were like halves in some sense. Um, But he is also basically just recapping a lot of the ideas of friendship that we've talked about before. So notice, you know, the paragraph at the bottom of page two o four. He stresses that, um, you know, the friendship works two contrary effects. He says, for it redoubleth joys and cutteth griefs in halves. Um, Meaning, if you have a friend, that friend will console you and make your miseries less miserable, but if you have a friend, you will both rejoice when good things happen, and therefore it will make your joys all that much more powerful. Notice that he's describing this as a scientific phenomenon. Bacon is a scientist first and foremost. Um, again, Bacon's writing in the 17th century in England. He is one of the major pioneers of the scientific revolution. Like, he is the guy who comes up with the fundamental uh, emphasis on experimentation as a as a crucial element in, uh, in creating knowledge. Um, and thus being able to repeat experiments. Like he is the one who like gives us the first draft of the scientific method in some sense. Um, he is looking at the phenomena. He is looking at, you know, what data is there to suggest what friendship is. What do people say about friendship? Um, So he ultimately comes up with a couple of rules for friends, like the the, um, fruits of friendship, as he calls them. Um, So first is this, that it redoubles joys and cuts griefs in half. Um, The second one he points out on page 205 in the first full paragraph there is friendship makes indeed a fair day in the affections, but it makes daylight in the understanding. Um, He's very much following Socrates on this, when he says a little later down the the paragraph, in the communicating and discoursing with another, he tosseth his thoughts more easily. Um, I.e. talking to a friend about your ideas helps you to express those ideas, helps you put those ideas into words, and therefore helps sort of clarify what those ideas actually are. Um, It stresses, you know, it stresses that you cannot actually know something until you've explained it to someone, and by explaining it to someone, that helps make that clear to you, makes that makes that uh, clear and, and understandable. Um, and then, to the third fruit of friendship, in the next paragraph at the bottom of two o five, he stresses the faithful counsel of a friend. Um, and he very much contrasts this with flattery, just as we saw Aristotle contrasting the, like, true counsel from friends with flattery, um, that good counsel from a friend will set you straight, whereas flattering will just make you miserable because it's just going to, like, cause you to think you're awesome when, in fact, you need to be corrected. Um so the last possible fruit is the one that he talks about on two oh seven, namely that friends will help you um, and will sort of live with you in all occasions. This is again something that Montaigne stress, something that Aristotle stresses, something that Cicero stresses, Bacon does as well. Namely that like friends are with you at all times and therefore they will help you at all times, um, will offer help whenever it is needed. Um, but I do actually want to spend more time on Milton if we can afford it because I find his discussion of marriage and divorce to be really interesting, given the context of the Reformation and the Renaissance and everything else that is going on here. Um, Again, I should stress that Milton is first and foremost a... uh, writer during the 17th century in England. Um, He is watching firsthand as the English government is like falling apart around him, largely because of the religious dissension through the new Protestants and especially the Puritans fighting against the perceived Catholics who are taking over the the, um, English rulership during this period in time. Uh, But notice that Milton too is doing a little bit of religious reform here. His argument is very much based from the Bible, um, and he is very much arguing on the basis of religion. Um, I want to sort of stress this, that at the same time as we've got, like, Montaigne kind of, you know, deprioritizing religion in his writings and Bacon not even bothering to bring it up, um, as much as I've stressed that like the, the humanistic writers are sort of straying away from religious philosophy, um, we also have Milton, who is hardcore interested in religious discussion. Um, as much as Protestantism can harbor those who just have no interest in religion, probably more than Catholicism does at this point, now that they're like rooting out all the atheists, Uh, Protestantism also has a lot of hardcore believers who are very interested in theology, and like I said, it is, you know, some of the reformers are definitely interested in political secular motives, some are very interested because they really do believe the truth of what they're saying. Notice that Milton is a reformer in this second type. Um, he is very much arguing, as he says, like, notice how clearly he articulates his ideas, although admittedly this is 17th century English writing, so it probably didn't come across. This, therefore, shall be the task and period of this discourse to prove, first, that other reasons of divorce besides adultery were by the law of Moses, and are yet to be allowed by the Christian magistrate as a piece of justice, and that the words of Christ are not hereby contrary. So notice the specific agenda that he has here. Um, There is this passage, we read it in our discussion of the New Testament, where Jesus says that all forms of divorce, except those that are uh, on the grounds of adultery, are essentially adultery themselves. Um, That like, you know, if if you are breaking the relationship that God has brought you, um, then you are doing a disservice to God. Milton is arguing that you can still have reasons for divorce outside of adultery and not actually contradict what Christ is saying there, specifically because marriage, as he argues, has a lot more to do with a mental connection, a spiritual connection between the husband and the wife. And what Milton is going to essentially argue is that because marriage is supposed to be based on this, you know, this connection that it has much more to do with the loneliness of Genesis 1 you know that business that we talked about where it's like not good for the man to be alone and therefore God makes a help meet for him you know Milton is absolutely looking at that passage and saying that that's what marriage is all about right there Genesis 1 look that's what marriage is for so the man will not be alone if the woman who the man takes as his companion is not an appropriate companion to him, either because he chose rashly or because he was, you know, just not great at picking or whatever, that's grounds for divorce. Now, I want to stress this for a couple of reasons. Obviously, You know, this makes sense to talk about in a discussion of like love and friendship, this idea that, you know, love should be based on this mental connection and not on this physical connection. The idea that Milton is recharacterizing the relationship between the married couple as being a spiritual and mental one is a big move for us. Uh, like this is this is a new thing it's something we saw in Dante for sure where Dante is saying that like he and Beatrice have a love that is so powerful and transcendent as you know to define Christianity for him but remember aquinas was like concupiscent love is not something that you should be looking for that for like a man and wife aren't expected to have that connection heck montaigne just said the same thing he very much stressed you know your affection for a woman is of a whole different order than your relationship to a man. But what is being suggested by Milton is no. The marriage is, if anything, to be held to a higher standard. It is supposed to be the defining relationship in a man's life, it is supposed to be the spiritual connection, the thing that makes the man not alone. And if it is failing to do that, then it needs to be reevaluated or dissolved. Um, and this is a huge deal. Like, as much as we aren't going to get a whole heck of a lot of time to discuss it, because I'm already sort of pre- pushing my time on this one, Milton is very much stressing that the spirit of this relationship the connection between a man and his wife not as just this purely physical thing which he's like Milton is kind of wryly pointing out that all the laws surrounding uh, marriage assume that it is purely physical and therefore refuse to dissolve it unless the physical component is not being met for one reason or another all of this assumes that there is some mental component but doesn't even like pay attention to that Milton is saying, no, the mental component is supposed to be first and foremost. This connection, this lack of loneliness, is supposed to be even greater than whatever the physical connection is. Notice what this implies. Notice that this means that the society itself has changed in a way that is profound and radical. Like, the Greeks would have totally disagreed with this. Because, remember, the Greeks didn't see women as being potentially equal to men at all there was no possibility of a woman offering friendship on the level of a spiritual connection because they weren't mentally developed as far as the Greeks were concerned because they weren't educated, because they couldn't be trained, because the whole society rejected this. And as much as the medievals do seem to suggest that like, yes, you should look for something more than sex, they never get to the point where they're willing to say, you know, women are people too. Um, Milton is implying here That women are supposed to be on the level of men, and that therefore a marriage should definitely have the character that we usually associate with friendship. That's the key here, and that's why I definitely wanted to include it in our readings for today. As much as this is a humanistic-centered text, like he's also arguing that you know divorce should be allowed because the human needs are central, and therefore it definitely falls into this whole humanistic project of sort of undermining the legalism and the tradition of the religious uh, philosophy and theology going forward in favor of a human-centered, emotion-centered, feeling-centered approach. Milton is also very much suggesting that women too have changed in this period, and the ideal position for a woman is not on the periphery of your life purely to be used for sexual Congress. No, Milton expects women to be intelligent, women to be a fitting companion to men, women to be their equals on some level. And if they're not doing that, if they are frigid sexually or if they are frigid mentally, if they're inequipped to support a man in their, in their a- efforts and activities, that too is grounds for divorce as weird as it is to say that a text supporting divorce is in fact kind of doing feminism in the 17th century, that's exactly what's happening here. And weirdly enough, the subject of divorce is going to get very wrapped up with the subject of feminism for the next few hundred years. So watch out for that, especially when we get to Wollstonecraft in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so Keep this in mind. Like, there's a lot of depth to what Milton is talking about. And I'm sorry that we don't have more time to go deeper into it because it's, it's just a shockingly rich text, one that I was not prepared for. Um, Milton is a very talented writer. He's the Paradise Lost guy, in case you were familiar with that text. Absolutely gorgeous poetry in Paradise Lost, as well as some really sneaky uh, philosophy um, and theology for that matter. Like, Milton is not to be trifled with for a variety of reasons. Um, his writing his little tiny letter on marriage and divorce here is actually really insightful and has a lot to say Um, again sorry we didn't get too deep into it Uh, but for now let's call it for today for next week we're going to talk about Spinoza's ethics what he has to say about love as well as Kant's little lecture on friendship that we have in the other selves textbook so next week we're going to pursue our history farther than the scientific revolution in the 17th century into the enlightenment we'll talk about what the enlightenment actually is what their priorities are what their deal is how that influences the american revolution or the french revolution like everything that's going on there and we will absolutely talk about these two texts and what they mean and how they recharacterize love yet again because again it's modernism everything is moving everything is changing oh it's so fast now and we're going to have to work real hard to keep up Um, So I'll talk to you soon, and I hope that you have enjoyed these readings and the ones to come.